heavily, I'm a clown. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Bitcoin Echo Chamber. Have the opportunity to talk with a guy that I met in Miami named Quentin. I'm not going to ruin this by telling you all about Quentin because I think that he speaks for himself much better than I can, but he is a very accomplished and very intelligent individual who's working on a project that really piqued my interest because it's right up my alley of people who are trying to come up with solutions to market problems created by regulatory environments and do so in a way that harnesses the deflationary power of Bitcoin to route around regulatory moats that create extreme problems uh, for people in the West. So I think you guys are going to really like this interview. There will be a link to Quentin's white paper for this proposal down in the show notes if you want to read that. I think eventually his plan is to host it on his website, Consensus 8, but I've checked Consensus 8 and it's not published there yet. So I just wanted to give that disclaimer uh, that the link down in the description should hopefully lead you to the white paper uh, if you are interested in reading it. Otherwise, let's get on to it. This episode of the Bitcoin Echo Chamber podcast is sponsored by WTFHappenedIn1971.com. The economics meme taking the world by storm where all of us are trying to find out the answer to what the heck happened in 1971. WTF 1971 also has a merch store now. You can find it at WTF-1971.creator-spring.com. I'll post a link to that down in the show notes if you want to check it out. Thanks for the support. So... Quentin, how are you doing, man? I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. Yeah. Uh, how, how are you recovering from Miami? Uh, you know what? Miami, as crazy as it was, is actually kind of slow-paced from, from my life on a day-to-day basis. Really? Yeah. You know, I'm a physician. I'm married to a physician. We have three young kids. I, I serve on the ethics committee, the transfusion board, the medical exec committee, the credentialing committee. Uh, you know, and then my wife and I are also pretty active in our community in terms of doing fundraising and charities. So just having no other obligation than getting up, walking around, listening to great lectures and uh, meeting new people who are very passionate about Bitcoin was actually a very chill weekend full of energy. That's awesome. Yeah. How long have you been in Bitcoin? I first, so I first heard about Bitcoin from my little brother who has always been more tech savvy than me in 2014. And like everybody else who gets into Bitcoin, they say the same two things. I should have bought sooner. I should have bought more. Mm. So I didn't actually buy my first uh, Bitcoin until mid-July of 2017. And it was really a very calculated mathematical entry into Bitcoin. You know, uh, I, I love going to Las Vegas mainly because I like to eat and I like to people watch. Mm. It's a great place to do that. But I don't like to gamble, but I love to watch gambling. I've always been the kind who likes to watch activities and then in my head try to create a mathematical model that can explain it and possibly forecast a future outcome and so i like to sit back and watch that's why i like watching particularly um roulette because usually find certain mathematical models and then you you pair that up with the character of the person placing bets and so with all that said i told my wife in 2017 i said you know all the times we've been to vegas and i've never gambled but i watched you you know put quite a bit of money into the slot machines never to get it back I'm gonna I'm gonna make a gamble on Bitcoin. I've been studying this thing mathematically it makes sense, and at first my thesis was I'm gonna get in, realize a profit, I'm gonna get out. So I bought my first two Bitcoin mid July 2017 at about seventeen hundred dollars, and it was like within a week or two weeks it doubled, and I'm sitting there like that was fast. And so like do I cash out and say I won? I'm like I I like what this thing can do. You know I I'm. I'm libertarian by nature. Uh, I had the, I guess you could say, I think Charlie Shrim said something that really struck me was, I have the heart of libertarian, but the mind of the capitalist. So with that, I thought, you know, this thing, it's not going anywhere. It is durable and it's, it's scarce. It's like, I want more. And so suffice it to say, since July, 2017, I, I have never sold Bitcoin. I've only bought more. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was into Bitcoin before the SegWit, you know, split that created Bitcoin Cash. Mm-hmm. And as soon as I accessed Bitcoin Cash, I did sell that and I bought more Bitcoin with that because I thought this is the superior blockchain. And mm-hmm. so 
yeah, that's pretty much how I got into it. How did you, was it, was that a difficult decision for you? How did you, what, what gave you confidence that Bitcoin was the superior, um, network over Bitcoin cash? In one word, decentralization. So in Bitcoin cash, because I thought, you know, decentralization in the effect that if you go with larger blocks, it's going to make it more and more difficult for people to run a node because of the memory required. So it just makes simple mathematical sense. The less memory it takes to to run a, a complete node, the more likely people will be involved in it. The more mm -hmm. nodes you have on the Bitcoin side versus the Bitcoin cash side. And so thus, the, the more robust and, and durable and secure the network would be. Yeah, I totally agree. But um, so you must have had must have had a, a pretty decent understanding of the the technical workings of Bitcoin to come to a conclusion like that. Yeah, it was. So I'm still learning about the tech. I'm not a programmer. Uh, I, I I don't read computer code. I, uh, but in terms of diagrams and the structure and listening to a lot of podcasts, I'm a podcast junkie. Uh, it was simple mathematics, mm -hmm. uh, not so much the tech side, but the math just made sense. And if we're being honest, Bitcoin, at the end of the day, it all boils down to mathematics. And so by having a nice, robust system where more people could run it, and, and additionally, this came up at the uh, Miami conference, Bitcoin Cash had a figurehead. It had Roger Ver. Mm -hmm. It had a guy who probably with a couple of words could have swung the price drastically. We've seen Elon Musk do that with Bitcoin, much to our chagrin, but I even told, um, I, I ran into Dan Hodel, or Dan Held, I call him Dan Hodel, Dan Held. And I said, you know, the cool thing is about during this bull run, you have the richest man in the world playing around with it. And eventually it's going to be a meme mm -hmm. where we say, hey guys, Elon Musk just said this about Bitcoin. See, nobody cares. We're getting past that. Right. So now that we have the richest man kind of play around with it, we've seen the price swing. We, we're proving that Bitcoin functions just as well without a spokesman or a figurehead where Bitcoin Cash had Roger Bear. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, do you think that there's any parallels between, <clears throat> as, a, as a physician, I th this is my assumption, I don't work in healthcare, but as a physician, you probably have to recognize that there's trade-offs with certain things, especially um, like medicine, like certain medications, they might treat an underlying condition, but they could exacerbate something else or create a new condition. Uh, do you think that there's maybe like parallels for you there and that understanding of the trade-offs in healthcare and maybe the trade-offs in technical design? It's uh, so what you just asked pretty much hits on exactly the, the project I've been working on. Yes. And they don't have to be there. So when, when we think about healthcare, I try to look at it from both the physician side, of course, because that's what I specialize in. But the one thing every physician has in common with every patient is that every physician is also a patient. So I look at it through both sides of that lens. Now you're going in, uh, what comes out for the patient, then from the patient's reflex or their perspective, I mean, as they pay into it, are they getting out of it what they expect? Mm. And they're, the, the closer you can bring that to a true reciprocity, the more in balance, I think, a system, not just healthcare, any system would be. So with that, yeah, you see it on all levels in terms of someone comes to a clinic, they have a certain insurance coverage, they have poorly controlled hypertension, not because they're not compliant, it's just that some patients have or high blood pressure that doesn't just respond to one medication, they have to be on multiple medications. Maybe the best treatment choice is a new to market drug that is not yet generic that is expensive. And then their insurance company says, we're not going to pay for it. Even mm -hmm. though this patient has made all their premium payments, they're not going to cover it. And that's not fair to the patient. So now they're forced to accept a lower quality medication to treat this problem. And what they've done, and I say they, the industry has kicked the can down the road because as this patient is exposed to poorly controlled high blood pressure for a prolonged period of time, they end up with other health problems that could have been avoided down the line. Again, it's not fair to the patient. Uh, it, it victimizes the patient as a member of a system to which they really don't have any other options yet. That's what I'm hoping to change. Now, Quentin, I know that the healthcare rabbit hole is deep. I know that there are a lot of issues with healthcare in the West. In a lot of ways, the West um, has a lot of great amenities in healthcare, right? We have 
some great technology, some great people that work in the field. And yet we have a lot of problems, right? There's, there's problems with the insurance. You know, you've got the whole issue of the legal monopolies around the insurance and the way that they deal with uh, the healthcare providers. Uh, you've got issues like in the pharmaceutical world, right? With um, misaligned incentives there. And you've got maybe potentially also some problems with um, legal monopolies surrounding the, the certification of doctors. And then you could talk about the publication of research, but can you give us like a crash course? Oh, and then like the ballooning, you know, you've probably seen this data and you probably know it much better than I do, but we have it on our website, the ballooning um, level of money spent and personnel growth in administration side of healthcare um, and not as nearly as much in the actual practicing practicing side of healthcare. So in your mind, what are the biggest problems um, in healthcare in the West today uh, that we're facing and, and what is it that you're working to try to solve? So the biggest problem, in my opinion, with healthcare in the West today, and, and particularly the United States of America, because you know we are a, a an open capitalist-based system that has tight regulatory controls that keeps it from functioning as a free market versus our neighbors to the north of Canada, which are a socialized system. So when we say the West, I'm going to peel out and just say United States of America, because it's the one that I'm most familiar with, even though I do have colleagues that work in socialized medicine. So with that said, the biggest problem is access to affordable care. Access to affordable quality care is the biggest problem. I think the United States is one of the front leaders in terms of innovation, uh, coming up with new concepts, new medicines, new technologies. Uh, but the ability to afford access to that as a patient, it's prohibitive. And then you look at the, the parcellation of the healthcare economy. We just spoke about a new in-class drug that might be too expensive for an insured U.S. patient but you can buy that same drug cheap in Mexico or Canada. And it's a US pharmaceutical company who is driven by investors. They wanna make money. And so they are able to essentially isolate a unique market, the United States at the expense of our citizens to get them to pay for all that. And then we distribute it globally uh, at a much lower cost. I mean, that's good for the globe, but we're taxing our own citizenry and the value they put into the economy in the forms of taxes and higher and higher health costs to fund all that for people who are in it for a high profit. So there's a question of ethics there. So if I were to say the US healthcare system has problems, they're essentially all because of two things, uh, the corporate design and the profiteering of healthcare backed by legislation that allows them to do it. And so the project that I've been working on, just I'll just close it now, uh, I call it Consensus 8. And I've essentially designed a healthcare system that will allow for healthcare savings accounts being funded with Bitcoin. And so the idea is that, you know, right now for you know, the listeners who may hear this that aren't familiar with what a health savings account is, it is a SEC approved account in which you can take pre-tax dollars, you can fund the account that's tax-free, if you, that account grows, which if you're just holding dollars, we know it's not growing, you're losing purchasing power. But if it were to grow and appreciate in purchasing power, that's not a taxable event. And then if you were to utilize those funds to pay for qualifying medical expenses, that's not a taxable event. That's known kind of in common parlance in the industry as the triple tax benefit of an HSA. So what I have designed is essentially a version of a healthcare savings account that's deflationary. You fund it with Bitcoin with pre-tax income. We know what Bitcoin does versus the US dollar given enough time, which is very powerful. And then at a future time, when you decide to either spend that, that Bitcoin, or if you were going to be one of these you know, smart investors, like I'm not touching my health savings account, it's too valuable. I'll spend my fiat money for right now until this grows to a certain amount. But when you decide to possibly spend that Bitcoin to cover a healthcare expense, it's not a taxable event. The example I, gave, I give in my, uh, my paper, let's see, I think it's in section two, uh, if you were to have broken your arm five years ago, 2016, uh, and you go to the ER to be treated, you have an intake, you get an IV, you get pain medication, you get an x-ray conservatively. And I'm giving myself the benefit of the doubt because that's how I like to enter debates or discussions. Conservatively, you could expect a bill of about $2,000. So back then, uh, I took the average uh, cost of Bitcoin extrapolated over the entire year of 2016, if you were to kind of dollar cost average your way in, it would have been 3.45 Bitcoin to cover that $2,000 bill. 
versus the moving 12-month average price of Bitcoin today, uh, and I, I stopped the clock at uh, June 12th when I actually put this statistic in my paper, it would So an absolutely scarce asset in an HSA increased your purchasing power in the healthcare world by a factor of 49. So you could pay for 49 arm fractures in 2021 for what it would have cost you for one in 2016. And that's the kind of ask I have of our government and the SEC is healthcare is one of the most vital things for any population. I mean, whether you're looking at it from the standpoint of a citizen, like I should be able to afford good healthcare. Or if you are a leader, like we would want a healthy population because a healthy population means a productive population, which means fewer problems, fewer, lower costs for social programs. So by moving these patients into a deflationary landscape, a special carve out for healthcare, if you think about the second and third order effects of what that means, I can go on and on, I'll give you one out of the gate. You have financially incentivized a patient to take better care of their health because on multiple reasons, they know that whatever I'm paying for my checkup or my screening colonoscopy today, it's going to be cheaper next year and even cheaper the year after that, even cheaper the year after that. And like an HSA of a standard nature that's funded in U.S. dollars, once you turn 65 and you go into Medicare, the remaining balance of your HSA can be used as another 401k type retirement account. So if I'm a patient in my 30s and 40s, I got kids, I'm like, you know what, I don't need to lose some weight. I need to start exercising because that's going to mean I have a much better retirement. That Bitcoin is waiting there for me when I hit 65. The narrative I would provide to the federal government is you leave this system as a patient who's been financially incentivized to be compliant with what their doctor asked them to do, lose weight, stop smoking. You enter the Medicare tax paying system as a healthier patient causing a lower burden on the taxpayer. So the biggest problem is the, the financial design of our current healthcare system and how it's being profiteered by insurance companies. Mm, yeah, yeah, I totally agree. So, so from my understanding, um, part of the reason healthcare is so expensive in the United States is because of the way the insurance system works uh, and because the insurance companies overbid or the, the hospitals overbid on the prices of everything that they do. And when I say hospitals, I use the term loosely, healthcare providers in general overbid the cost of everything that they do for the insurance companies uh, with the intention that they're going to meet in the middle. And then if a consumer comes in and wants to pay cash, the going rate is typically the price that they offer the insurance companies prior to um, them settling somewhere in the middle. Is that accurate? Yeah, that, that is. Yeah. That's, that's one component of it, but you're right. Uh, so, cause I, I also deal with healthcare contract negotiation and it's like one of these things, right? I, when I go into a room to discuss this with a representative from a health insurance company, it's like, I have to call myself. It's, it's infuriating because you will have a contract that you, all, all contracts start off good. You know, it was like, cause they want you there. They want you in their network. Mm. But then what happens is as time goes on, they slowly say, well, you know, the economy's not doing so well. So we're going to pay you uh, 95% of what we were paying you just because we it's just getting bad you know they, they give you all kinds of diagrams and stuff that's from their source data and so immediately i'm like well i mean you have an independent collection of data oftentimes it's no it's like well this is we have a whole department that assesses this i'm like i'm sure you do and it's for your benefit because you're a publicly traded company i don't say that of course but so what the game is uh as the cost of living goes up as doctors who are also paying more for their own coverage goes up they say well if i want to try to recapture and get back to my 100 percent original contract, I'm going to raise my rates, hoping to balance back at 100%. So the insurance company says, for instance, doctors will, they will bill out what's called an RVU, uh, relative value unit. So for instance, I'm an anesthesiologist. There are actual publications that say, if you perform anesthesia for this surgery, it's worth this many RVUs. And the RVUs are typically reflective of how complex of a procedure it is. And then there are also modifiers for how sick is your patient? Is this a very challenging case? So I'll give you just a classic example, um, an appendectomy. That, that procedure has an RVU value of seven. So whatever you charge per RVU, you say, you know, if I charge $60 an RVU times seven, I mean, there you are, $420 bill. Mm. So if the insurance company comes, it says, we're going to pay you less for RVU, 
and then across all the other insurance companies, they all kind of follow suit. After a period of time, you're going to say, well, I increased my charging per RVU because mm -hmm. I'm now making 85% of what I used to make, you know, so it's back and forth, back and forth, but then, yeah, your self-pay patient comes in uh, and they see your RVU price. Well, you're making the same amount from the insurance company, but now pay it a lot more from that self-pay patient, which is wrong. Mm -hmm. The problem is, and I can get in trouble for saying this, but at this point, I honestly don't care. I offer, and I do this through the billing company that I work through, I say, I offer my self-pay patients a discounted self-pay price mm -hmm. and I move that down to what an insured patient is actually paying or what I would get paid from an insured patient through their insurance company. Mm -hmm. I just hope to stay right here. Uh, so over, I, I've been in private practice now since uh, 2008 and if I have seen an increase in my income over one year, it's because my volume was a lot higher but I'm consistently making less per patient treated. Wow. In a continual line so uh yeah that that's one cause of the added the increased cost of healthcare. but if you look at insurance companies and how they collect profit premiums are are the main source of profit all insurance companies they they make profit based off two forms the residual of pooled premiums that were not paid out for that calendar year in healthcare expenses and whatever that residual is they claim as profit, they take that and then they invest in other ventures until then they have capital gains as their second source of income. Right. And the Affordable Care Act, it does provision for a safety mechanism that tried to prevent this and it tried to prevent how much of the pooled premiums can the insurance company keep. And it, it, depending on how large your insurance company is, it's uh, 80 to 85% of all paid in premiums have to be paid out in either healthcare expenditures or quality improvement programs. So that's known as the MLR. It's in section, uh, I believe it's like 90, I have it here somewhere, 90014 of the Affordable Care Act. So that just created a new game for the insurance companies. Right. If they want more profit, they raise premiums. Uh, and then they, of course, the patient has to pay a higher premium now, but they, the insurance company on their side has more money in their account and they just pay out the same 80, 85%. And that's how they avoid being penalized by the MLR. It, it sounded good on paper though. <laughs> It did. And, and I don't know. And I, th I think it was, it was for multiple reasons. I think you had some legislators who didn't understand the fallout effects, you know, in terms of secondary, you know, tertiary, quaternary order effects and what would happen in the, in the game theoretic that would play out here with insurance companies saying, okay, yeah, put that in there. We're fine with that. We'll just increase the premiums. I mean, you got smart people on both sides, but I will say the people on the private industry insurance side are a lot smarter, the more savvy. But you also have a very strong special lobbyist group uh, that lobbies on behalf of insurance companies. And so you also have that ethical dilemma within Congress that, yeah, we'd really like to see the MR here. Um, we could help you with your campaign expenses, you know, through their donation. And so it's usually, it's really hard to tie. You can follow the money trail. It's convoluted because you're not going to see Aetna or Blue Cross writing a massive right. check to fund. They go through these third parties to do all that, you know, right. campaign. Right. And, uh, and a lot of those... The, a lot of the bigger, the more influential politicians have, um, what do you call them, um, organizations or um, funds or or just external vehicles that they use to to funnel their wealth through. So it's not like, oh, this company donated this amount of money to this person. Yeah. It's a little bit harder than, to see than that. So, um, all right, I'm I'm going to propose something here, and and then let's let's talk about it. So, yeah. it seems like your approach, uh, while in the beginning, it's it's you're at a disadvantage as someone using an HSA. Um, you know, just just any HSA. Forget the fact for a second that it might you might be using uh, taking advantage of the deflationary effects of Bitcoin to to magnify your purchasing power over long time periods uh, and and benefiting that way. But just an HSA in general, you're you're in some ways at a disadvantage because you know you can only cover as much healthcare as you have capital in your in your HSA. And then on the other side, you know, like versus with insurance, well, at the end of the day, they're going to have to pay for you for something, your premiums might go up, but you know, if you have to go and get tons of medical procedures done, you you have that insurance that will cover that healthcare for you. Um, and 
as a as a cash payer, um, fortunately, like you said, for you, you you give your patients who pay on their own a bit of a discount because you know the way the insurance system is manipulating the prices. So, in my mind, the best thing to do, right, would be to deregulate insurance. And legislatively, that's not going to happen. Probably, it's probably certainly it's not going to happen tomorrow because I'm not going to be able to convince all these politicians about the incentives and the way these things work uh, and about the economics behind it. Um, but but I know that that's what we would need to do to to fix this problem is to deregulate. And um, what was interesting to me is that what you're proposing, well, on the surface right now, it it it's it's difficult. It's a tough problem to solve. But if more and more people are switching over to the HSA and less and less people are paying into these expensive insurance premiums every month, then the ability of the insurance companies to push healthcare providers around in terms of their ability to provide healthcare at an affordable cost probably will be lessened the more and more people are using uh, your deflationary HSA vehicle. Do you think that's an accurate assumption? Yeah. um, I don't mean to declare war during this conversation. My, My dream would be to see families, individuals, households, financially independent in terms of what they can afford in healthcare because they have huge balances and and deflationary HSAs that we start to see insurance companies go broke. Mm. That they, we don't need a third party. We don't need this entity that's incentivized to not pay out a premium, get between you and your doctor and, and taint the sanctity of the patient physician relationship, which I'm passionate about. I, I don't like people telling me no when I know it's best for a patient. My wife is also a physician. It, it infuriates her. So you, you mentioned about, you know, they have to pay out once you have premiums in. That's not necessarily the case. They will, they will deny. So things that insurance companies put in their policies that act as financial obstacles that keep them from having to pay out the premium, uh, there are five of them. There's denial of authorization. So let's say, let's say uh, you injure, you, you go to CrossFit, you injure your rotator cuff. You, you, you're, you're in pain, you want to get it fixed, you need an MRI because they're not going to approve the surgery unless they have radiographic or MRI magnetic imaging to prove that there is an injury. So even to get the MRI, my wife does this all the time. They'll say, yeah, we don't know if there's enough evidence to hear the patient really needs an MRI. They'll deny it. So denial of authorization is the first one. Copay, which means you got to pay a little bit up front, and that does kind of eat into your deductible, but that's coming out of your pocket. Then you have the deductible and a lot of patients because they can't afford high premiums they take the high deductible to downplay or pull down the premium uh, and then you have um, co-insurance so for instance no matter how much you've paid in if you have a huge bill you will already 2080 is a common one you'll be responsible for 20 percent of the bill all the time until you meet the maximum out of household reliable which is usually a very high amount and then you have on the physician side or the healthcare entity side um, claim denial which even though they pre-authorized it, you documented you did what you are billing the insurance company for, they'll say, yeah, it doesn't seem like you have enough paperwork here to justify it. And now you're on a, this uh, timeline that if you don't get all that paperwork in again and again and again in time, you're past the expiration and now you can never file the billing for it. So there are a lot of impediments in the system. The idea with a health savings account system, and again, it's in the paper, as I talk about the evolution of the patient, uh, I would encourage patients to, yeah, total their deflationary HSA and try to pay as much with fiat as they can while that builds and builds and builds. And the idea is that you may have to pay out of that to kind of fund your premium, fund your deductible, but the rate at which health insurance costs increase, and it is considerable, it, it still pales in comparison to the value of Bitcoin nominated in US dollars. So the idea is that if you are like a, a family and you are maxing out how much you can put away legally in an HSA every year, which I believe for the year 2021 is set at $7,200 for a family, $7,200 of Bitcoin this year, it'll probably go up next year, $7,250. It's not unreasonable to think after six, seven years, you could have easily a balance of 500000 US dollars, but in Bitcoin. That is life-changing for a lot of families. At some point, you're going to get to the point where because one of the the good things the Trump administration did is they got rid of the mandate. You're not obligated to have insurance now. You don't have to through compulsion through your government. If you're sitting there as a family and say 10 years, you got 700, maybe even a million dollars of Bitcoin sitting in a DHSA. Why am I paying for insurance anymore? You know, if we hit the big one and we have a horrible trauma and I'm in the ICU, 
then we'll fly for catastrophic. Then I'll leverage the insurance care, the insurance uh, market to help me now, but you can call it, you know, qualify for catastrophic, but you get independent and that frees up even more cash flow because now you're not paying premiums back into buy more Bitcoin or take that vindication. Uh, so it's the evolution. It won't be like we're going to flip a switch. This will be a tide that gains momentum as more and more patients slowly it slowly gives them more and more independence that they no longer need that third-party payer. Uh, in terms of government creating these micro-markets, the McCarran-Ferguson Act of 1945 was key in all that. Um, this was a law that uh, was voted in in the spirit of states' rights, which I am a big proponent of. The Constitution states that the federal government can regulate interstate trade and commerce. Well, they gave a card out for insurance policies because they said insurance policies really aren't products. Even though you have to shop a marketplace to get them, they don't see them as products. And so we really think that should be regulated at the state level for state rights so that within their state, they can control the quality of the insurance policies to protect their citizens. Sounds good. Again, most things when they first come out sound good. What this has allowed for are in health insurance companies to create 50 micro markets oligopolies to where they can control the prices within the political state borders. Like I, I live in Oklahoma. Blue Cross is probably the biggest commercial insurer in Oklahoma. A Blue Cross plan is cheaper in Texas, but I'm not allowed to buy one in Texas. So it right there, you remove the downward price pressure of a competitive marketplace. You have truly veiled true price discovery in an open market through a piece of legislation that is like 70 plus years old. There was a move to try to get that abolished or amended as they were, you know, hashing out the 2010 Affordable Care Act. But I mean, it, it's it's no mystery why it's still in place. Now, there it was amended the uh, McCarran-Ferguson Act. Uh, it was amended in 2020 that stated that health insurance companies were no longer protected from antitrust laws by the McCarran-Ferguson Act, which opens up the possibility for a lawsuit if someone wanted to sue an insurance company for saying you can't buy across state lines, but nobody has come forth to do that. And just by uh, consequence, or I'm um, sorry, um, coincidence, I was at a party last night and uh, one of the people I met, I've known her for a while, but I didn't know what she did for a living. So we started talking, she works for a company that helps set up health insurance companies through various HRs of corporations in the state where I live. And I asked her, I said, you know about that repeal? And I said, well, I know about the amendment. It was section 1013 of the US code that says that uh, insurance companies are no longer exempt and, and immune from any kind of antitrust lawsuit. I said, but she still tries to apply for insurance products over state lines to lower the costs for her clientele and they won't allow for it. So it was almost like, hey, we're, we're kind of doing our thing. It looks good. I'm a politician. We voted for this, but it's not a reality, at least not yet. So. You have the government and the corporations not necessarily working together, but it's a feedback loop because one does fund the other leads to the profit of one or the health at the expense of the health and the wealth of the citizens of this country. So as far as the individual goes, who, who wants to start trying to use an HSA, obviously everyone's situation is different, but what does that look like for people? I mean, you know, certainly a lot of people um, in America have employer-funded uh, healthcare insurance, and part of that comes into like salary negotiation when you take the job, or every new year when you review or renew your coverage. Uh, and you could probably choose not to take that coverage and maybe get a little bit of a higher salary. Uh, but everybody's situation is going to be a little bit different, depending. So people that want to get into this HSA. Um, what does that look like for them, in your opinion? Uh, so it looks very different from somebody who is an employee of a larger company that has, you know, a whole HR department and, you know, perks and bennies versus your smaller company or your entrepreneur or someone who wants to start their own company and is out there on their own and is not able to benefit from a large, a larger pool of patients that would drop down their, their premiums. So the common thread between both of them would be that in addition to paying for health insurance, and that could be 
your employers say, hey, we, we want to attract more talent here at this company. So we're not only are we going to cover your premiums, but we'll also set you up with a, a health savings account. But, and I don't know if, if, if they, I know you can be matched on retirement. I don't know if an employer can match you on your contributions to an HSA. Regardless, if they say with this comes an HSA and you can just tell HR how much of my paycheck each month do I want held back pre-tax to go into this HSA for future expenses and deposit my HSA in Bitcoin. So it'd be a simple matter of like any other health savings account going through your HR department as an added benefit of employment at that corporation. Or I know through my, I'm an entrepreneur, I don't work, I'm not an employed physician, I work for myself, I'm a private contractor, but I have a CPA who does all of my, my book balancing, all my taxes to keep everything nice and clean and transparent, my retirement, I could set one up through him if I chose to do so. So it's just a matter of what are your uh, your resources. You know, if you're an, an employee of a very large corporation, you you should have access to a you know a pretty robust HR department that would help you set that up. I know our employees at the hospital that I work at have that available to them. Uh, I used to be a share owner in a ambulatory surgery center. And so we hired a third party to act as our HR and make it have that set up for them. So, and I'm assuming the way that you've structured, you mentioned that you have the white paper coming soon. Um, the way that you've structured this is it's as far as the, the, the end user goes, it, it's dollars in, which then probably get converted to Bitcoin by some trusted agent managing the the fund is that how it works or is it am i buying like the bitcoin on my brokerage account and sending it to somebody that manages the hsa how does that work uh my so there's going to be a lot of discussion that has to happen with the sec to make sure this is all going to be kosher my dream the way i would like to see it end up is that you self-custody your bitcoin and it might be that they ask the these deflationary health savings accounts, they have to be available for audit so that at any point we can make sure that this patient is actually spending it for healthcare and not taking their family on a cruise with it. Mm. But I would like it to be that the patient takes their dollars pre-tax. Um, and I, I, decentralization is key here. I don't want to run my own exchange. I don't want to hold all the money for them. I want every individual to custody their own Bitcoin. And if they're not comfortable doing that, I would like to see the free market come up with options where you have a institution that you would trust that would custody it for you, or maybe even Coinbase could come up with special accounts that would fall under the regulations that allow people to keep this Bitcoin separate from what they buy as, a, as, as an investment. And then once they draw it out of there, you know, it might be that that gets transmitted to, you know, the IRS to say, hey, these, these expenses came out of this account. And if they want to go back on a future date to audit that, to prove that, yeah, that money was actually spent on healthcare, what have you, uh, I don't want to control all that. All I'm hoping to do is get the blessing from the SEC to say, yeah, uh, citizens can hold Bitcoin in an HSA for healthcare expenses with triple tax benefit. And then the network side that I'm developing is creating a network where if a physician, a and I call them healthcare entities in my paper, a physician, a dentist, physical therapist, occupational therapist, pharmacy, a hospital, mental health would be huge in this because it's, it's horribly underfunded in our country. If they want to be a healthcare entity in this network, it's, it's absolutely mandatory. They have to publish their fee schedule, absolute transparency. So patients as consumers know before they decide to go see a, a, a healthcare entity for an appointment, they know what's going to cost upfront because payment will be sent to the network in escrow up front so that the entity who's going to provide the service can see that the patient is willing to commit to coming to see they've already put their bitcoin up there if i can tell you real quick the rundown of how this all works so let's say you're the patient and you're you need let's say you have an injured acl you need to have that assessed to possibly have it operate on to repair it you see you tore it on a, on a ski trip you go to the network you shop all of the healthcare entities in that network, and specifically you're looking for a surgeon that can fix an ACL. And so you have multivariate reviews of all these healthcare entities that are sourced by patients who have already seen them. So you can kind of like, almost like the Amazon rating, say, okay, well, this one has great bedside manner. This one sees patients without making you wait in the waiting room for four hours, what have you. And for an evaluation of an ACL tear, this is their fee. And you can see it both nominated in US dollars and Bitcoin right there. So you say, I wanna see that doc. 
so you can either do it the old school way where you call the office and you schedule it, or you can schedule through the network because right there's your schedule and you just find an empty spot and like that works for my schedule, I'm like that one. What that does is it generates a contract request automatically. So if you did it through the network, it's automatic. If you have to call, then the receptionist at that practice has to input the data. So that uh, contract request gets sent right to the network and it contains two things. It contains an EID, it's, it's an encounter ID number, and it contains a billing code. Now, the amount they charge for that type of appointment based on the fee schedule they've already published. So it holds that healthcare entity accountable for only billing you what they told you they were going to bill you for based off the published fee schedule. So that, that EIN, it's, it's a hashed uh, variable and it's unique to this one encounter. So I'm playing with different models of it. I'm trying to get the one that's most secure, but essentially if you were to use like a, a SHA-256, have you played around with the SHA-256 encryptor? A little bit. Yeah, so you would put like the patient's first name, last name, date of birth, uh, the date and time of the appointment and that healthcare entity's network ID number. And it creates a SHA-256 alphanumeric code. That's your EID. Mm -hmm. And so that that's what tags this contract to this billing code. And that gets sent to the network. And the network immediately sends you a transfer of fund request, which means we need you to send Bitcoin to the network and holding for this scheduled appointment you have. As that happens, the healthcare entity also sends you the EID. Now, this all happens in the background. Your app on your phone, you don't have to write out that whole thing. The reason you get an EID from two sources is to verify you're not being frauded. So the EID, as it comes from your healthcare entity, if it matches the same one that the network sends you as a payment request and they correlate, then you know this is a valid request for transfer of funds. Once you transfer funds, immediately three keys are distributed. One to your app, so it's a two or three key multi-sig transaction process. The healthcare entity has one. The network retains a key in case there's a disagreement between you and the healthcare entity. They can sign to get those funds to go back to you as reimbursement. But the whole idea is that the, the network should be involved as little as possible. Hopefully all this, vast majority of these transactions happen without any disagreement. So then you go see the your healthcare entity on the scheduled time. When they're done, you sign your key, they sign your key, they receive payment, it's done. And because that EID was encrypted with the date and time of that specific appointment, it'll never be usable again. It can't, you can't exist at the same place twice more than once on the same timeline. So it's unique to that encounter and it's recoverable should you ever want to audit it or you have any proof that, you, that it happened at some point in the past. So I have two thoughts. Um, firstly, I, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking I'm understanding you right here. So even with an HSA, there's in-network care providers. I can't just go in, is that, is that correct? Uh, it depends. So if, you're, if you are insured and you have a third-party payer and you expect that third-party payer to either pay all or pay part of your electric bill, you have to see a healthcare entity that is in their network unless they give you approval otherwise. Let's say within your network, let's say you have a very rare disease that requires a special sub-sub-specialist and they just happen to not have one in their network, then they would have to pay for you to go out of network. Mm -hmm. uh, if you are out of state, most insurance policies, let's say uh, you're on vacation and you have you sustain an injury, your healthcare insurance will pay for that. And that, even though it's out of network, it's emergent. So by default, it's considered in network. Mm -hmm. If you were going to pay for the entirety of it out of your HSA, there there is no the whole country is your network. And that's like the whole idea okay. of the evolution of these patients. Once they become financially independent from a healthcare perspective, the whole country is in network. And, you know, healthcare. So, sorry, where you lost me a little bit there was you were explaining the, the mechanism for um, making the payments out of the HSA and verifying them. And you kept talking about the network. And that was why I thought maybe there was a network associated with the HSA that you were trying to set up. Yeah. So, I, it, I mean, I'm using network in two ways. There's the consensus state network, which is essentially all the physicians and patients that want to take part in this. But then you would be at first limited to only using physicians and healthcare entities that are in this network that also take your insurance initially. Because they were set up to be verified to receive the payment from the HSA that can only be spent on healthcare. Is that correct? 
well, the payment, so if you, let's say you are a, a newcomer to this network and you're not yet financially independent enough to go without insurance, then unless you're going to pay everything out of your HSA for this ACL repair, you would want to file it with insurance mm. or you would want to get pre-authorization through insurance. So now you can only see a surgeon in the consensus aid network that takes your insurance. And so the idea that is that healthcare entity, they're not getting paid the entirety of their bill from you. They're going to get paid from you, their copay for that consultation. Then your deductible will be paid. And then the remainder, it's up to me as the doctor, I got to file outside the network an insurance claim that, like, hey, I, I took care of this gentleman over here. Um, Here's the documentation. I did that. Now the insurance company pays me the difference. Okay, so the, the, future the co-pays and the deductibles are coming out of the HSA, and that's where you're talking about it fitting into the network. Yes, until okay. like, as you become more and more independent, my my dream is that goes away, and you have patients right. after you know so many years. Right, it's a long-term goal. So, um, as you were explaining the the idea for the way the system is orchestrated to me. Um, I was actually thinking that this might be a really good use case for Bitcoin vaults. I don't know if you're familiar with those, uh, but essentially the way that they work is um, I, I won't get too into the technicals. I, I did an interview with the, the CEO of Revault um, last week. Uh, so anybody listening who wants to know more about vaults can go listen to that. But essentially what it allows you to do is put Bitcoin, you know, take an, take an amount of Bitcoin and then it can only be sent to addresses that are whitelisted by the watchtowers, the, the vault watchtowers. And I actually think that this would be a pretty incredible use case for this because it's auditable. So you could have a watchtower run by, you know, the, the, um, any, any external third party that wants to audit the HSA funds and make sure that they're only going to approved, uh, recipients of those payments, you could set up like a third party that that sort of acts as an escrow. So it's like, okay, HSA payments are only allowed to go to that third party who then pays, holds those funds in escrow and then pays them to um, wherever they go to make sure that I'm not spending that money on cruises or vacations or whatever, like you said. Um, yeah. But I actually think that that would be a, a remarkably um, applicable use case for Bitcoin vaults is, is a system like this where you're setting up tax advantaged accounts uh, and you want to make sure that people are only paying uh, recipients of that money for the services that they're expected to be using that account for. Yeah, that's, I think, uh, thank you for that. That's going to be my reading assignment for this, this coming week to make myself more familiar with that. I highly I recommend uh, the podcast I did with uh, Kevin Lowick, I think is how I pronounce his name. Um, He's he's an awesome guy, and I'm sure he'd be happy to talk to you about it. Good deal. I appreciate that. Yeah, I will say I have talked to uh, Strike about this mm. because I, ideally, and if, if the melts can work it with it on Lightning Network, that's where I'd like to see this happen for two reasons. Transaction fees are much lower on the second layer. The whole idea is to reduce unnecessary costs to anybody. Uh, and then there is inherently by design a little bit more anonymity with transactions on the Lightning Network because there are, as this thing scales, there'll be a lot more transactions per unit time on Lightning that are subsequently settled on layer one. Mm -hmm. So because you have to kind of, you know, follow the trail of EIDs and numbers and accounts, it would inherently provide patients with a little bit more, you know, anonymity and privacy. I mean, privacy of one's health, it's huge. Healthy people don't mind telling people they're healthy. Somebody who has an ailment or disease or an addiction, they probably want to keep that private. And it's it's their right to privacy to do that. And I wouldn't want a network to in any way compromise that. And so because, you know, I run a full node, you know, it's I, it's interesting. I, I will sometimes follow my own transactions as I, you know, buy Bitcoin or move Bitcoin to, you know, how I, I cold store it. It's fun to watch that happen. But it only codes for one megabyte worth of transactions, and that's more easy to search and do your forensics than the Lightning Network Layer 2 with a whole bunch of batch transactions getting something later on the, on the baseline blockchain. It Actually, now that I think about it, too, you know, because it's, you're right, you know, it, it eventually something like this would have to be done on, on Layer 2 or maybe like a side chain. This almost seems like a good application for, for something like Liquid, too. I mean, it, imagine the, the third-party escrow service is like a, a Liquid-like 
um, side chain, you know, and, and, and they, you, you lock in the Bitcoin with them like you would on liquid and they issue you the, the liquid tokens, so to speak. And those can only be spent with, you know, a healthcare provider. So it's something like that um, makes a lot of sense because obviously, you know, you, you can't do all of these things on the base layer forever. Uh, Lightning, I think would be pretty tricky for a use case like this, but, but liquid, I don't know. That might be a really interesting thing to look into as well. My uh, eventual desire is to try to get this thing as far from possible. My mind says that it's too important, you know, people's health and what they pay for it in terms of maintaining it and curing ailment. Uh, my dream is at some point this could become sufficiently automated that nobody needs to control it anymore. Right. Just this existing network out there, it's uh, purely decentralized. And then why could it not scale to the global level eventually? Because I, you know, health, finance, math, I mean, those are all global languages. I, I, if I were to go on a mission trip, uh, you know, be cool and to go to Pyongyang, North Korea, and They've got the materials I'm used to using here. If I can read the vials, I can take care of a Korean patient. I mean, we're all the same on the inside, more or less. I mean, there's there's variations of anatomy and physiology. I get that, but it these are global languages, and so the the less chance there is at somebody coming in and trying to recentralize it and sequester it or influence the market, the better off it's going to be. That's why the whole idea of trying to stay with um, blockchains and networks that are more proof of work than proof of stake, so you don't have this grab to try to influence a network and, and re-centralize it. I, I want to try to get this thing where it hits escape velocity and then you've liberated healthcare and the corporates, the people want to come in and try to profiteer off the ailments of others. I'd like for it to become an impossibility if, if possible. Yeah, I don't know. I think that's always going to be difficult with um, it, just because of all the regulation involved, right? There's always going to be people uh, that want to be involved in some way, shape or form. Um, and until we get to a point in the world where legislators and regulators have less leverage to work their way into systems and uh, establish themselves, uh, I, you know, I don't know. Um, but yeah. I, I, I love what you're doing. I love where your head's at. I love your passion for this. I think that uh, this is a noble pursuit. And, and I think, you know, I, I love the approach it was why I asked the question earlier on. I, I love the approach of rather than lobbying Congress to try to deregulate insurance markets, well, let's just try to solve it with the market today, which is what Bitcoin is, which is what Strike is doing. Um, and, and I think it's it's awesome to see. Not to belittle my own statement, the one that you just referred to, but as I was trying to think about, you know, getting away from trying to repeal legislation and go the old school route and just create a whole new system on the side that will hopefully outgrow or outpace the conventional one. Uh, you've seen the movie Step Brothers? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that scene where they're trying to figure out what are we gonna do with our lives. And so, you know, Will Ferrell and John C. Riley's like, well, you know, I sing like an angel and you can shred on the drums, let's do a band. Like, no, that's been done before. We're doing prestige worldwide. So the whole idea is like, you can try to keep repealing this and lobbying and trying to spend all this money on political action committees. And it's not going to get anywhere other than to make politicians more powerful, with more campaign money. So just go out and create a whole new system that works and puts the patient first and say, you can have your laws. You know, we will peacefully opt into a new system given enough time. Right. And you just have to make it so good that they don't have enough time to stop it. I mean, that's look at Uber. That's yeah. I, or I was going to say, uh, make it so obviously beneficial for the patient at no expense to the country. Mm -hmm. If a legislator or a leader or somebody in an authoritative position is going to say no, demand that you tell your constituents why. What, what reason, other than your own personal gain, would you deny your patients cheaper and cheaper health care with each passing year? What do you have to lose? I mean... From a personal perspective, if you are a politician with a lot of influence, you have a lot to lose. But your patients stand to lose a lot more if you tell them no. Um, and you know, you get down to campaigning, you really need two things to have a chance, money and popularity. If you remove a pop, uh, politician's popularity, they're going to have trouble getting money because people who are going to make a donation to a campaign, they don't want to bet on a losing horse. 
So it could truly be a grassroots type movement where given enough people who understand a system like this to educate other patients, like ask your, ask your congressman, why? Why can you not have a system like this that doesn't cost the taxpayer anything and gets you cheaper and cheaper healthcare? Yeah, especially if it can just exist alongside the, uh, I think anytime something can exist alongside the existing system, nothing has to be, there's no scorched earth going on. Um, It's good for everybody because the the better system is always going to win out. Um, So I know you said you haven't yet published the white paper, but so where can people learn more about this if they want to get involved? Where can they find you if they have any questions? Uh, And probably by the time you said you're going to publish it Monday, right? The paper. Yeah, I'm, I'm waiting for the last edit read, which I should have back today or tomorrow. Uh, this I, will probably be out after you publish it, I imagine. So, yeah. So, uh, you know, I'm trying. I do own consensus8.com. It's just the word consensus, the number eight, uh, and I chose eight. I like. I like games. I like mysteries. I like trying to find patterns and encryption. So, to me, eight is just the infinity symbol turned on its side. And uh, so consensus8.com, that, that website will hopefully be going live in two weeks. But I'm essentially just going to take this thing and I'm going to put it on medium.com. I'm going to send it to all my friends that uh, on Twitter that follow me. So it'll be at Quentin Lobb. And that should be at symbol of my first name and last name, Q-U-E-N-T-I-N-L-O-B-B. And uh, I just want the scene to spread naturally like wildfire. And uh, like I said, I'm trying to source people that will help me with this. I'm not so much looking, for, it's not going to be for sale. There are not going to be dividends paid out. Um, I do have a funding way to keep this network going, but it, it pulls 2% of transaction fees, which could mean a lot of money, but that money is going to be paid back to HSAs in a manner that was proportionate to what they paid in during that same period. So I only need enough out of there to staff it, to do research and development, to secure the network. And then a big thing is uh, educate both uh, patients and healthcare entities. So, you know, there'll be like free videos, free classes and stuff on how does, what does it mean if I'm gonna have a colonoscopy? You know, I'm not, I can't show a video of that, of course, but there'd be a description or I get my labs. What does it mean if my sodium's too high? Just educate the patient on what is it you're spending money on and what does it mean? All right, guys, welcome back. That unfortunately was the end of my interview with Quentin because we had some technical difficulties after that and I decided to just go ahead and stop the recording. Uh, I feel like we got most of what we needed to talk about out in that conversation and the technology did not want to cooperate with us further, so we just kind of called it there. Um, I, ho- I think you guys got the gist of it, what he's getting at and what he's trying to accomplish with Bitcoin. I think it's a super interesting idea. I'd love to see Quentin's uh, proposals gain some traction. I'd love to see more people talking about this. It's very reminiscent of some of the things that uh, Untapped Growth is working on in regards to uh, regenerative farming and, and uh, husbandry. So I'd really like to see more of this type of thinking uh take center stage in the medical industry as well, where I think we have a lot of problems in in the United States. Let me know what you guys think. Uh, Let Quentin know what you guys think. Give him some feedback. I'm sure he will appreciate it. If you like the show, you can find all of our episodes at the Bitcoin Echo Chamber. Wait. No, not the Bitcoin Echo Chamber. BitcoinEchoChamber.com. I'm pulling a Ben Prentice right now. As well, you can find us on pretty much any of your favorite podcasting services. Just look for the Bitcoin Echo Chamber. You will find us. If you want to reach out to me, you can send me an email at bitcoinechochamber at gmail.com. As well, you can reach out to me on Twitter at heavilyarmedc. That's the letter C. I love hearing from you guys, even if it's just comments, even if you're just like, hey, man, like the show. I hate your avatar. I think you're dumb. You know, I'll be give you a thumbs up and a, and a little cheers glass emoji because that's the Internet, man. Anyways, guys, thanks so much for listening. I will see you in the next one.
Whoa! 